You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. And so for him, it's not so much, I think, therefore I am. Camus suggests it's that I resist and therefore we are. What one finds at moments of crisis, for example, the plague, that various people have this need to resist what's taking place. Hello, I'm Sean Illing, co-host of The Way Through. This summer, Seagal, Samuel, and I are taking turns talking to spiritual leaders, philosophers, and occasionally historians who can help us put our questions about this difficult period in a larger context, and maybe even find something meaningful in this experience. My guest today is Robert Zaretsky, a philosopher and historian at the University of Houston. I reached out to Zaretsky because he wrote one of the best books on the 20th century French philosopher Albert Camus, called Albert Camus, Elements of a Life. Camus, as you may know, is having a moment of sorts. His famous 1947 novel, The Plague, has obvious resonance with our time, and a lot of people have been discovering and rediscovering it. Camus is my favorite writer, and in a previous life as a political theorist, I wrote my dissertation on his philosophy. In this conversation, Zaretsky and I dive into The Plague and Camus' other works, and we talk about the moral lessons he has to offer us in a moment like this, a moment defined by sickness, and political unrest. Ultimately, this is our attempt to find some inspiration in one of the most important thinkers of the last century. I found this conversation deeply enriching, and although it takes some unusual turns into heavy ideas and themes, I think it speaks to the urgency of this moment in a fresh and humane way. As you'll hear, I adore Camus, and his work really changed how I think about the world and my responsibilities to other people. His voice, I believe, is badly needed in these charged times. So here's my conversation with Robert Zaretsky. Robert Zaretsky, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. So I want to say at the outset, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is because I think I think Albert Camus' philosophy really matters today in a way a lot of older philosophies don't. And, you know, I wrote my dissertation on Camus in a previous life. And 
I sort of fell in love with him because he struck me as a, a profoundly decent man. And in almost everything he wrote as a journalist or a philosopher or an artist, there's always an undercurrent of earnestness and moral seriousness. And almost everything he wrote orbits around this same question, which is something like, what does it mean to act justly in an absurd and unjust world? And we're going to get into some of his answers here. But before we do, I'd love to just ask you, what was it that drew you to Camus as a philosopher and a historian? Well, when I was first drawn to Camus, I was neither a historian nor a philosopher. I was a high school student, um, and I discovered a copy of The Stranger on my brother's bed one day. I picked it up, brought it into my bedroom, and read it, and I really didn't understand it. In fact, I didn't understand it at all. I was perplexed by the novel, by the story. And at the same time, I had this sense that something important was going on, something terribly important. But he was a constant, in part because of my work in French history. Um, um, I focused way back then on uh, Vichy France, um, uh, France during the Second World War and its occupation by uh, the Germans. And um, of course, Camus' life in so many ways intersects with that dark period of French history. And so, I returned to Camus both as a witness to these times, but also an actor. And I was never quite able to put down, you know, the bits and pieces I learned as a philosopher. And what fascinated me about Camus from this point on was the way in which philosophy was not a system of, of, of abstract thought. It wasn't a series of logical arguments. But he understood history, or I'm sorry, philosophy, um, in the way that the ancients did. It wasn't a means to inform us. It was a way to form us, to change our lives. Once we recognize certain, certain fundamental truths about the world and our relationship to, uh, to that world. And that's what kept me close to Camus all of these years. And I think it's important to note for listeners who may not know much about Camus that he was writing his best stuff in the middle of World War II. And so he was, he was a man who was trying to navigate a very difficult time filled with a lot of fanaticisms on all sides. He was trying to find a kind of middle way to get away from these ideas that had carried people to the extreme and, and try to find something concrete and decent as an anchor to make the world a more humane place. And I always admired that about him. And it sounds like you do too. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that you use the word concrete, um, he always insisted upon the palpable, upon the real, upon what we can touch and feel and hear and taste. He um, was horrified by abstractions um, and the ways in which um, abstractions um, careless language can lead to the sorts of horrors that he experienced during the war and that we're experiencing once again, um, some 75, 80 years later. I think it's important to keep in mind, Sean, that, that 
when Camus first started writing, um, uh, the war hadn't yet um, um, begun. Um, you know, he's a 20-something from um, French Algeria, but he begins as a writer in the mid-1930s, um, and he writes essays, and they're quite beautiful, these early essays. Uh, they're extremely lyrical, not the sort of Camus we have in mind when we read The Stranger or The Plague. And when he turns to the works that we know him by, or that first batch of works by which we know him, The Stranger and The Myth of Sisyphus in Caligula, um, all of these works are begun before the advent of the Second World War. It's um, after the outbreak of the world of the war and during what the French called the Trois de Guerre, what we call the phony war, that he's revising these works and he completes them shortly after France's defeat um, um, in the summer of 1940. So these works were largely not just conceived but completed before the experience of occupation. And it's at that moment uh, with the occupation that what he thought he knew about himself, what he thought he knew about the world changes dramatically that he moves on in, in, in significant fashion, uh, philosophically, ethically, um, even narratively from those earlier works. I'm glad you mentioned the myth of Sisyphus because I wanna start there. The focus of this conversation is going to be the plague for obvious reasons, but I don't think it's possible to really make sense of, of what he's doing in that book and what he's trying to say without at least giving listeners a summary of, of his philosophy of the absurd, which is very important to everything he'll say morally and politically later. And so let's start there. The Myth of Sisyphus is the book where Camus lays out absurdity and what it means for human life. Do you just want to explain maybe briefly what he means when he says that life is absurd? Because there's a lot of confusion on this point. There is a lot of confusion. I'll try my best. In the myth of Sisyphus, and it's important to keep in mind about this, about this work, he describes it as a philosophical essay, Sean. It's not a work of traditional philosophy. And he is very serious about the nature of essay writing. Um, one of the writers he uh, was most attached to was Michel de Montaigne, the creator, the inventor of the genre of the essay. And what essay means in French, uh, essaye means, it means to try. And an essay is a trial, it's an attempt. And it's not, success is not guaranteed. Um, the point of an essay is to, is to sort of like move in one direction and then in another direction, trying one path, trying another path, trying to open one door, opening that door and discovering that there are yet other do doors you never ever anticipated. This is the very nature of essay writing. And the essay never tries to prove a point. It's not an argument, it's an exploration. And so this is why he chose the term essay for both the Myth of Sisyphus as well as uh, the Rebel, his second philosophical essay. And so what he's attempting to do in the myth of Sisyphus is assay the nature of our relationship to the world. 
And he finds that relationship absurd. And why does he find it absurd? Well, it's because there's this convergence between our need, humankind's need for meaning, for some kind of clarity about our place in the cosmos. Uh, we have questions that need to be answered, like Job. And the problem, as at least initially with Job and with us, is that no answers from the cosmos are forthcoming. We demand to know, and the response is silence. And so it is that convergence that Camus identifies as the absurd. And so the great question is, having diagnosed our condition as absurd, what do we do about it? And he finds an answer of sorts, and it's provisional. We have to keep in mind that this is an essay. The answer of sorts is in the figure of Sisyphus. And Sisyphus, of course, is this figure from Greek mythology of this man who's condemned by the gods to ceaselessly roll a boulder up a hill over and over and over again. He rolls it up, it tumbles down, he rolls it back up, it tumbles back down. And for Camus, that is a perfectly tragic metaphor for the human condition. Absolutely. It's the perfect metaphor for the human condition, but I don't know, Sean, if he would qualify it as tragic. It depends on how you approach it. And when he concludes the essay by saying, we have to imagine Sisyphus happy. There's no tragedy there. He overcomes this punishment. Uh, he makes it his own. You know, the thing about Sisyphus and that we often lose sight of is his background. You know, he was a trickster. He keeps on embarrassing the gods. You know, he is packed off to hell at the order of Zeus by Hades. Um, he tricks Hades. I mean, he's handcuffed by Hades. And then he asks Hades, well, how do these things work? And Hades shows him on his own wrists. And so Hades is now handcuffed. And Sisyphus escape, you know, returns to the surface of the world. And at the very same time, because Hades is handcuffed, he's immobilized, people stop dying. <laughs> and that's an intolerable situation for, um, for the gods. And so he's, 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 he's Ares this time around catches him, brings him back down. But this time around, uh, Sisyphus manages to fool Persephone, telling her that he wasn't properly buried. But if you know, she would give him a couple of days to return to the uh, world um, in order to straighten things out, he'll return. Once again, um, um, he um, sort of lies. He doesn't return. And the reason he doesn't return, and this is what is, I think is key when it comes to our understanding of Sisyphus, but also our understanding of Camus, is that the reason he doesn't return is that he loves the world too much. He loves life too much. 
Sisyphus is just extraordinarily sensual. Uh, he's a lover of life. And this was very much the case with Camus too. He doesn't want to die because there's nothing after. And so this is something that Sisyphus has all of time, all of eternity to think about in this particular version of the myth. Um, and um, he shoulders it. He makes it his own. And just to clarify, what, what Camus was saying is not that the world itself is absurd. The world just is. The world appears absurd to us because of this collision between what he says, a collision between the, the human demand for meaning and the, quote, unreasonable silence of the world. Exactly. And yet, and yet, he concludes that life is nonetheless worth living. Why? Because that's all we have, Sean. Um, if we insist on some kind of life after this life, if we insist on some kind of transcendental solace, consolation, that there is something beyond this world that will give us meaning, that will give us something greater than what we have here right now at this very moment as you and I talk, uh, Camus says, it's, I'm sorry, but it's not going to happen. The world is as good as it's going to get. Um, and meaning, though it is furtive, though it's ephemeral, though it evaporates as soon as it appears, this is it. Um, this is the sum total of the meaning available to us in this world. A lot of critics, especially religious critics, responded by saying that you know an absurd world is a nihilistic world it's a world without rules or limits or morality or decency and Camus concludes the opposite right for him an absurd world is a world that that actually binds us and enjoins us to build the ethical order or to make life meaningful maybe that's the point of the book is to say that the meaning of life is to make life meaningful, just as Sisyphus makes that boulder his own. Oh, I, th I think you're right about that. Um, um, and I think that is what I was trying to say just before about this movement away from the diagnosis of our condition that we find in the myth of Sisyphus, or for that matter, in The Stranger. That movement is from that first trilogy of works that he wrote, The Stranger, The Myth of Sisyphus, and Caligula, which he called The Cycle of the Absurd. But by 1941, 1942, he realized that the diagnosis itself simply wasn't sufficient. What he needed now was a kind of prescription. How do we go about finding a cure to this condition? And it's at this moment, Sean, that he begins to uh, jot down ideas in his notebooks for the second cycle, as of course you know, the cycle that he's going to give the name, the cycle of rebellion or a cycle of revolt. And here we have him moving away from the diagnosis to 
a method. This is what we do um, if we want to respond to our absurd condition. Um, and so in a way they offer guides to the perplexed, the perplexed in occupied France in 19, between 40 and 44, the perplexed in post-war Europe, um, and uh, the perplexed for that matter in 21st century America. Well, this is, a, I think, a really great bridge to the plague because the, the myth of Sisyphus is very much about the individual confronting an uncaring world. And the plague is very much about moving from that individual experience to a shared experience. Maybe the best way into this is just to have you maybe just explain for people who have not read the book, what is the plague about? What's the basic narrative? Most simply, the plague is a fictional account of uh, the advent of the bubonic plague in the city of Oran, which is, um, which was and remains Algeria's second largest city. It's also on the coast, like Algiers, the largest city in the capital. And sometime in the 1940s, uh, we're not given a precise year, the city is suddenly hammered by the plague. And the story is told by a narrator who at first doesn't identify himself. We eventually learn that the narrator is also one of the chief characters in the novel, a doctor by the name of Bernard Rieu. And he decides to provide an account of the response of the people of Oran to the plague um, when its first signs become manifest and then when it reveals itself as the plague and then the quarantine, the lockdown um, uh, of the city that follows and how they respond during this lockdown to this disease that has besieged the city. And so what he's trying to do philosophically as well as narratively is convey both his experience of living under the plague, namely the occupation of France by the Germans, but also trying to make a case, and this becomes much more explicit in The Rebel, of what we were talking about just before, namely um, the importance of moderation, which for him is really the most courageous of virtues. And um, what you find in the plague are the ways in which Rieu and the other characters, it's a little bit like, it's a bit like, say, the, Magnific the Magnificent Seven. You have this collection of, um, of odd people who separately did not have much of an impact upon, upon the world, but they joined forces over the course of the plague in Oran and what they achieve as a group as opposed to individuals pursuing their individual interests is quite extraordinary. And as you've already mentioned, this is really the point 
Camus distills this point um, in a famous tweak he gives to Descartes in The Rebel. Um, Descartes, of course, is the 17th century thinker who gave us the cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And Camus, at a certain point in The Rebel, says, well, that's all well and good if you're interested in making the case for an individual and discrete ego, oneself. But I'm more interested in knowing how to make a case for the collective rather than for the individual. And so for him, it's not so much I think, therefore I am. Camus suggests in The Rebel, it's that I resist and therefore we are. In other words, what one finds at moments of crisis, for example, the plague, that various people have this need to resist what's taking place. And that, 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 that initial step towards resistance of saying no, of saying that's the last straw, of saying this cannot be tolerated, when you reach that point, according to Camus, and you look around, you discover that other people are doing the very same thing. And that's where the meaning is to be found. And um, it's a bit heavy-handed and probably also a bit um, um, unnecessary on my part to point out how that's taking place today, Sean, uh, with the social movements that have that have formed in the wake of George Floyd's murder, for example. And how does your intimate knowledge of the this, this book, The Plague, color how you see what's happening right now? Not just with, obviously, a plague that's upon us, but like you said, also this, this moment of, of mass action and mass protest and solidarity. I think that in many ways the plague um, um, anticipates not just what's taking place in the United States today, but what has taken place over the course of decades, ever since 1947, the civil rights movement, for example, or the pressure um, in occupied Europe, uh, the, uh, that part of Europe behind the Iron Curtain, that finally led to that tipping point in 1989 and the collapse of the, of the Berlin Wall and the implosion of the Soviet Union. It serves as a kind of template, this, this wonderfully compelling and complex template of the ways in which people respond to governments, to forces that pose a threat to their dignity and to their integrity as human beings. And so on the one hand, absolutely, what is taking place right now in the United States in regard to Black Lives Matter um, is quite extraordinary. And it's something that I think would please Camus. Um, but I think Camus at the very same time, and you would find this in certain of his characters, for example, uh, the doctor, Rieu, would also be worried about the excesses of uh, the response 
to George Floyd's murder. Um, this is something that he examines in, in great detail in The Rebel, which is the philosophical pendant to the play. Um, he makes the case, and you know this as well, if not better than I do, given your own work on Camus, he makes the case that rebellion is distinct from revolution. The rebel is not the revolutionary. The rebel, in fact, is a moderate. It's somebody who insists on the one hand of telling that individual or that institution, here the line must be drawn. You cannot do this to me without infringing upon my human rights. But at the very same time, Camus underscores in The Rebel, we have to keep first and foremost in our minds the humanity of those who are attempting to do this to us. And it is or it requires this tremendous exertion um, to hold the balance between falling to one side and becoming a revolutionary and doing what revolutionaries always do, right? Um, they lend themselves or their actions to abstractions and forget the human cost of what's the human cost that's involved um, or falling off to the other side and becoming apathetic or simply resigned to the way things are. And so the situation of the rebel is one that is um, in constant stress and strain. It's one filled with enormous tension. And here's where the tragic aspect to Camus' thought lies, I think, Sean. It's that this position can't always be maintained. Sooner or later, the rebel turns into a revolutionary or becomes a bystander or becomes one of the resigned, one of the quiet ones. And, you know, it brings to mind, it brings to my mind the conclusion, the, the end to the plague, where once the plague has disappeared from Iran, that it leaves as mysteriously as it arrives, Dr. Chia tells us. Um, he's watching everybody sort of reappear from their apartments, from their homes, filling the streets again, filling the cafe tables, so glad to have their lives back. It's life after lockdown, right? And yet, as he's watching them celebrate, he's standing alone. He's apart from the crowd. And he says, the plague is always with us. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The Gray Area, 
Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. (laughs) That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'll come back at the very end to that that final beautiful passage where this point is being made. But but I want to hold on this question of what the plague symbolizes. It symbolizes a few different things. But one of the things it symbolizes is the absurd. And the plague is absurd in the sense that it just happens. It just is. We're living our lives the way we always live our lives, and it arrives. The scourge comes, and there's no real explanation for it. There's no real point to it. It can't be justified. It can't be explained. It just is. In the same way we find ourselves hurled into this existence that doesn't have any higher meaning or purpose, and it will end. And the question is, well, how do we respond to that? And in the plague, you have all these these characters, and they're all demonstrating this conflict that we all have to face one way or the other between our individual happiness and our obligations to other people. And all of the characters are defined by what they do when the plague comes. That's the only thing that matters. What do you do now? As you were just saying, one of the things, one of the many things that a plague does is it shakes us out of this stupor that we live in. We, we have these kind of default mode of life where we, we fall into routines. We take comfort in certain stories we tell ourselves, in certain patterns and habits. And this explodes all of that shit at once. And all of a sudden, we are all facing the same situation and we have to do something about it. And I would love to hear you maybe just talk a bit about how these characters respond and what their responses are intended to convey. Because they're all in their own way kind of models of of a a, a certain kind of person, how a certain kind of person responds to the world and to other people around it. And, and, And how do those... How does each character symbolize different moral ways of being? Um, Sure, I can give it a try. Well, we can begin with Dr. Chia. Um, And he's frustrated. Um, And his frustration is probably the same frustration that, say, um, Tony Fauci feels right now in regard to um, our president. Um, Namely that... He knows something terrible is unfolding on Iran. At first, he himself can't quite believe it. There are legions of rats who've appeared in the streets and are dying. And then a few of his patients begin to develop these really weird symptoms that had not been seen for centuries. He himself at first refuses to believe what's in front of his eyes. But then he does. He says, I can't avoid the truth. It's the plague. And he tries to communicate this to the authorities. And the authorities refuse to believe it. And they have all sorts of reasons not to have everybody wear face masks in a way, right? And the reasons are deeply political. 
And finally, they agree to a quarantine, but they will not call it the plague. In a fit of exasperation, Chia says, call it whatever you want to call it, but recognize it for what it is. And they do, and the city is locked down. And it's clear from the outset that Chia is a truth teller. And he insists that if the truth cannot be said, for example, there's a journalist from Paris by the name of Rambert who wants to interview him about the condition of the Arab and Berber communities in and outside of Iran. And Dr. Khia asks him, will you be able to print everything that I tell you? And Rambert says, I can't guarantee that. And Khia replies, then there's no point in talking. And so Khia's ethic is um, establishing a one-to-one correspondence between language and the world. There is a plague unfolding in our city and we must respond, we must respond to it. And his ethic is made more complex by his belief that though there are no transcendental um, um, sources of solace or salvation for humankind, his work nevertheless is his work. In other words, he insists, I just need to do the best job possible. So here's somebody whose job, saving lives, um, is primordial. Then you have the character Rambert, the journalist, who comes down to do a story or a series of stories on the on um, the Arabs and Berbers um, of Algeria. Um, and when the city is locked down, Rambert is besides himself because he's from Paris. That's where his his girlfriend lives, and he wants to return. And so. He tries to find all sorts of ways of escaping the city. And very early on, following the announcement of the quarantine, he goes to Khia and asks him for a medical pass that designates him as healthy and able to return to to Paris. And Khia replies, well, you know I can't give that to you. And Rambert, frustrated, says, but I don't belong here. And Chiyah's reply is just, is quite simple and utterly true. From now on, you do belong here. Um, Something that I've been trying to keep in mind as Houston now approaches another lockdown. We all belong here. There is the character Jean Tahu, this mysterious man who um, lives in the same building as Chiyah who doesn't seem to have any employment. He doesn't seem to have a job or profession. And soon after the uh, declaration of the quarantine, the lockdown of Iran, he approaches Dr. Khia with the idea of forming sanitation squads. And we eventually learn why he wants to do this. Um, And it has to do with an experience he had as a teenager 
uh, who went with his father one day to court. His father was a magistrate and a very nice man, or so the son thought. And then once they were in the courthouse, he saw his father reappear in a robe and a wig, and he demanded the death sentence of this small figure that was sit- who was sitting in the dock. And in the speech given by Tahu's father, suddenly everything had been be- had was rendered abstract. Um, that this man had to pay the ultimate price for the deed that he had done. And so while the father is going on in these abstract and grand terms, all the teenage Tahu can do was look at this little man and notice details to him, that his tie is askew um, and that his fingernails are bitten down to the nub and that he looks like an owl. But nobody's looking at him that way. They now see him as an abstraction, somebody who must pay this ultimate price. And Tahu tells Ria at that moment, I realized we're all carrying the plague and that we have to be as careful as possible not to breathe it on one another. And what that entails, as with Ria, is using language in as clear and truthful a fashion as possible. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, when the plague comes, you have different people who react in different ways. Some people despair over the loss of their freedom. Some people panic. Some people exploit it. They see an opportunity to scheme. Some people deny it. And then there are people like the doctor who just help other people because that's all there is to do. And one of the ideas that Camus had that I, I look around today and I wonder if it's refuted, he believed, I think he wrote in his notebooks, that the plague abolishes all systems. It sort of destroys the gap between theory and, and practice. Right? There, our ideas and our systems and our ideologies don't mean shit when, we're, when bodies are piling up in the street. And the idea was that it, it, it was just clarifying event that would, that, would, that would get us, again, like I said earlier, shake us out of the stupor and get us to pay attention to right now. And I look around today and that doesn't seem to be the case. There, there are a, a lot of people who are either acknowledging what we're facing and they just don't care or to be more generous, they're just simply choosing individual freedom and individual happiness over their obligations to not breathe in other people's faces, not not fasten the infection, is the way Taru puts it. I wonder what you think about that. Knowing this book, knowing Camus, having this philosophy running in your head all the time, when you look around and you see the different reactions to people right now, you, where you have a significant number of people that are just either in denial or their political beliefs are kind of short-circuiting their ability to to see what's right in front of their noses. And I wonder if you think that Camus was maybe a little too optimistic in believing that something, a crisis, a real crisis like a plague would force us all to face in the same direction at the same time and move in concert together. I'm not sure what the answer is. He finished the novel um, right after the end of the Second World War, and it was published in 1947. 
And this was some seven years before the outbreak of the war uh, for independence in Algeria. And it's a war that it, it, it's outrageous to suggest there's a comparison between what was taking place in Algeria during the 1950s in the quest for um, the Arab and Berber populations to win their independence against France and what's taking place in our own country today. But what Camus witnessed as a pied noir, as a native French Algerian, torn between his commitment to Republican ideals and his commitment to those family members, most importantly his mother, as well as friends, other pied noirs, European colonists living in Algeria, sometimes for generations, and his concern about their well-being. It's somewhere on the same spectrum with what's going on now. And at a certain point during the, uh, the war in Algeria, Camus, who was increasingly desperate, trying to find a middle ground, maintained that position of a rebel. He wrote a series of newspaper columns um, that uh, were published in L'Express, um, uh, which was a French imitation of Newsweek or Time magazine. It was begun in the 1950s in part as a means of protesting France's role in this bloodbath in Algeria. And the, the final op-ed or column in the series of columns was called Sauver les Cours, Save Bodies. And in this piece, he makes the case for a civilian truce. And it's a little bit like what you just said. In other words, screw politics, screw ideologies. At least on this, we can agree that the people bearing the brunt of this war are civilians, not the FLN, the, uh, the, uh, the independence movement of uh, Algerian Arabs, and not uh, French soldiers, but it's the civilians, um, both within with the Pied Noir community and with the Arab community. So at least can we find a middle ground so that these lives would be exempt, that they would no longer be threatened by this civil war. And uh, it went nowhere. And after the failure of this effort to introduce a civilian truth, Camus fell into silence. He never again publicly spoke about the war in Algeria. Um, and so I would not be surprised if during these last few years of his life, he dies in 1960, as you know, but um, as the, uh, the war is becoming ever more violent and bloody and indiscriminate in Algeria. Perhaps he did think, perhaps he did tell himself that he was perhaps a tad too optimistic. There's a very clear ethic in the plague that I think was as just and right then as it, it is now. And in your, your book on Camus, which I dutifully cited in my dissertation, I want you to know, 
you called it an ethics of attention. Mm. And I would love for you to just say what you mean by that, because it, it, if, if I could sum up his ethic in a word, I, I would sum it up in with attentiveness. What is that ethic? At this point, after, after, after the Second World War, Camus is named as one of the editors at Gallimard, which is France's most prestigious publishing house. And uh, it was the publishing house that published his first trilogy of The Absurd. And it was in his function as editor that he was given um, hundreds and hundreds of pages unpublished by Simone Weil, um, who was a religious thinker, a political theorist, a labor organizer, um, a left-wing um, anarcho-syndicalist militant who joined the Free French in 1943, 1942, forgive me, and um, in London, and then died in 1943. They never met. But in a way, Camus had the impression that he did meet her as he when he started reading her manuscripts. And in fact, in 1957, when he went to Stockholm to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature, he was asked at a press conference, what friends could he cite, the names of friends he could cite, who have influenced his work? And he named two, one being the French uh, poet, René Shaw, and the other, Simone Weil. And when the journalist said, but Madame Weil um, is dead, Camus' reply was to the effect, uh, that's no obstacle for her remaining my, my dear friend. And, um, and one of the things he gets from Simone Weil is this notion of attention, Sean. Um, and very quickly, what Weil understands by attention is the emptying out of ourselves you know, the, the, the suppression of what Iris Murdoch, another great fan of Simone Weil's and Albert Camus, called the fat, relentless ego, somehow pushing that aside or pressing it down in order to make room for the other. And so by attention, it's not, you know, what we sort of find in, you know, human resource offices or in banks or in department stores where people are pretending to listen to you, but all the while thinking about how they need to respond or what they already have decided they're going to say in response. But um, what attention is, is what Simone Weil calls decreation, undoing yourself in order to make room for other selves in your life. And this is what I think Camus' character in the plague understand. I think this is what this is what motivates Rieu and Taru, that they attend to their patients, to the sick, um, 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 in ways that um, are wholly admirable. Yeah, and I just want to say, as an aside, I, Camus actually called they a, a moral genius. I, I think in one of his notebooks and. And I think it's a shame more people don't know who she is. Just an absolutely brilliant human being and just a moral force that I, I encourage anyone who's listening to this to pick up anything she wrote 
and read it. It, it really is a gem. All of her works have been translated into English, um, um, and they're published by Rutledge in England. And uh, for what it's worth, I have a book coming out in February uh, with the University of Chicago Press um, on Simone Weil. So. But getting back to this, this idea of attention, Camus was very critical of some of his ideological contemporaries, and he, he called them abstract humanitarians. These were, these were people who, who loved this ideal of humanity, but they didn't pay enough attention to immediate experience, to the suffering right in, in front of their noses. And for Camus, the, the here now is the one sacred thing that cannot be violated, which is why everyone in the plague who isn't involved in reducing suffering is in fact not just indifferent or passive, they're complicit. They're complicit in making things worse. They're complicit in spreading the plague. And I, 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 it's just, I think, a very powerful idea. And I agree with you. And um, though they had so many differences to the extent, even before their falling out in 1952, um, and I'm speaking about the friendship between Sartre and Camus, but Camus would have agreed, did agree, with a claim made by Sartre in that public talk he gave in 1945 that went on to become the text is ex existentialism is a humanism, in which Sartre writes that um, uh, not to choose is the worst possible choice of all. Um, and this speaks to this notion of complicity, I believe that you were just speaking about. Um, um, there are times that require engagement. Um, you know, as French intellectuals, both Camus and Sartre believe that. Um, I think Sartre often got it wrong, whereas I think that Camus mostly got it right. And I think, and I think the reason is something that the late historian, Tony Jutt, put his finger on so well. He described Camus as a moralist. Uh, which is not the same as a moralizer, somebody who wags his finger and gives lessons. We have lots of those today. Every age has moralizers. But a moralist, Judd suggests, is somebody who is uneasy with herself or himself. Um, somebody who realizes that he or she is just not quite getting it right. Um, and so the unease that they feel or the discomfort they feel with the way in which society is doing or not doing certain things or others are not doing or doing certain things. They feel it themselves. And so um, these are the people that we turn to as guides, even if as Camus always insisted, he didn't want to be a guide. One thing I, I really do want to get across in this conversation and something I, I wrote about in, in a, a brief article for Vox when the when COVID really exploded on, onto the scene is this idea of Camus that the plague, a plague, just dramatizes a, a permanent truth of our condition all the time, which is that we are all vulnerable to loss, to death, to suffering. No one escapes it. No one escapes it. 
and for him, the choice to be made, the choice that everyone has to make, even if they don't make it, as you were just saying, they're making it. We're all victims in the way I just described. And we have to choose whether we're going to take the side of the victim or not. And the victims in this case is all of us, not only people who are suffering from the plague or people who have friends and family suffering from the plague, but people who are just suffering, who are rolling their boulders up that hill every day until they can roll no more. And it's, it's just a beautiful symbol of our kind of common humanity and our common fate. And if we could just take hold of that and take an opportunity like a plague to see that in the starkest, most vivid way possible, we might be able to build, in his words, an earthly kingdom out of that awareness. Yeah, and you've said it so well, Sean. Um, um, it would be an extraordinary thing. I, I think of that scene in the plague when Chia and Tahu um, are in Chia's apartment, and it's at that moment that Tahu had shared his story with Chia about his experience with his father at the court and what he has done ever since in order not to be an agent of the plague. And it's at this moment that the plague, the spike of the plague is at its highest and both men are just exhausted. And Chia, after Taru tells his story, says, let's take a moment off for friendship. And they go for a swim in the Bay of Algiers, in the Mediterranean. And it's silent. They don't say a word to one another. And at a certain moment while they're swimming, their strokes begin to synchronize. They mesh. And it's one of the most extraordinarily beautiful images in the novel. And perhaps by holding on to this image of just trying to synchronize our lives with one another um, in ways that speak to our shared humanity, our shared dangers, our shared aspirations, that would be a wonderful thing. Um, I realize that sounds lame, um, but this is what I at least am reduced to right now. I want to close this out by reading this, the final passage of, of the book, and I'll ask the listeners to just bear with me. It's not that long, but it's particularly beautiful and particularly important. And I'll just ask you when I'm done what it, what it means to you or what do you think Camus is suggesting. And it goes, and indeed, as he listened to the cries of joy rising from the town, Ryu remembered that such joy is always imperiled. He knew what those jubilant crowds did not know but could have learned from books, that the plague never dies or disappears for good, that it can lie dormant for years and years in furniture and linen chest, that it bides its time in bedrooms, cellars, trunks, and bookshelves, and that perhaps the day would come when, for the bane and enlightening of men, 
it would rouse up its rats again and send them forth to die in a happy city. What does that mean? To me, that conclusion is um, a lesson in modesty and a lesson in humility. That's what it means. Um, and the great problem today in our country is that among the first casualties of our epidemic um, or our twinned epidemics, the social epidemic of institutionalized racism um, and the way in which George Floyd's murder has ignited what is what was a truly dreadful moment in our lives to one that's hopeful. Um, and also the medical epidemic of the new coronavirus. Um, that one of the first victims of at least the medical epidemic um, and to some of the extreme responses to the social epidemic is humility, it's modesty. This is something that the conclusion to the plague and so much of Camus' life and work recalls to us, namely keeping in sight, uh, never letting go of the human and that the human really is all we have um, in this time and in this place. To me, that, that passage always, it just sort of reiterated the, the ethic of the whole book, which is that if we cease paying attention to the suffering around us, we will become a cause of that suffering. And even though this plague, COVID, will fade away just as the plague in, in this novel faded away, the plague of our condition, the plague of suffering will persist. And the only difference is, is or the only question rather is, is whether we're working to reduce, reduce that suffering or whether we're paying attention to our own individual happiness or to any other diversions or abstractions you can imagine. And the message feels as urgent now as it ever did. I couldn't agree with you more, Sean. I think that's a, a wonderful way to, to bring this to a conclusion. Well, I, I just want to, I want to thank you for, for doing this. Um, I, I deeply appreciate your work and I adore Camus and it was a real pleasure to, to share this conversation with you and, and to, to learn from, from your perspective and your insights on, on his work. So thank you. Well, listen, thank you. I enjoyed it a great deal. Robert Zaretsky, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Sean. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like today's show, make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. And of course, please share with your friends and family. If you'd like to offer feedback about this podcast, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Illing, or you can email me at sean.illing at vox.com. Our producer is Jackson Bierfeldt. The show is edited by Albert Ventura. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson. And this show is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Visit vox.com slash podcast to find more of our shows. Thank you.
What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.